The other day I mentioned to someone that I was studying Spanish and he said, yeah, well, that's a good idea since Spanish has taken over the country. Sometimes it does seem that way. When I was a kid in the 1970s, I don't ever remember seeing bilingual signs, even growing up in San Diego. Now you walk into Walmart or Home Depot, and it's common to see the aisles signed in English and Spanish. And of course, we hear things like this. Welcome to Bank of America. To get started, please say or enter the last four digits of your ATM debit card number. Para servicio en español, marque nueve. But here's what most of us don't know. Fully 25% of American Latinos don't speak Spanish because they can't. Welcome to America the Bilingual, a podcast for people who think bilingualism is good for themselves and for their country. I'm Steve Levine. But I was one year old when they moved from Puerto Rico to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the city where I have lived for the rest of my life. Yes, I was born there. Yes, I am Puerto Rican through and through. But, you know, again, I have no re recollection of ever having lived there. That's Ed Delatore. He doesn't speak Spanish. When filling out a form that asks about race, Ed says he feels obliged to check the box Hispanic but he bristles at the idea that he deserves any special treatment as a minority. I'm an American first and foremost, and I always want to be considered that. Ed's parents grew up in poverty in Puerto Rico and went to New York City in search of a better life. They met each other as teenagers and um, lived through the war together. My father fought in the Marine Corps during World War II. And after the war was over, they, like so many other young couples of the time, got married. Ed's father, Manuel de la Torre, learned his trade with the help of the GI Bill. He learned how to make orthopedic braces for the handicapped. The couple's first son, Ed's older brother, Paul, was born in 1954. The family of three moved back to Puerto Rico, thinking they could make a living in the orthopedics business there. But it was tough going. Ed was born in 1961, and soon after, an opportunity opened to start a private practice in Pittsburgh. I would say the majority of Puerto Ricans living in the mainland U.S., you know, lived in New York City or lived in Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. And we did have relatives living in both of those uh, cities. But we, the Delatories, were the oddballs because we were off in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It might have helped Ed acquire Spanish if he had grown up around relatives and friends who spoke it. But the main reason Ed didn't learn is that his parents didn't speak to him in Spanish. I asked him why not. I, I don't know that I have an exact answer for you, but my hunch is that they just never had the time to teach. Their fledgling business consumed Ed's parents. They were just so busy living life and trying to provide for the family that that's all they cared about, that's all they focused on. There may have been another factor, too. Ed saw how his father suffered prejudice because of his thick Puerto Rican accent. One offended hospital administrator said they could no longer do business with a delatory firm, even though all the doctors and patients praised his father's work. This was post-war America, an accent was seen as an impediment to success. 
and Ed's parents came to the U.S. not just for their business, but also to get their boys the education they themselves never received, and to get it in American English. You know, they just enrolled us in the local public school. And granted, for, you know, a lot of Americans or, you know, people that have lived here all their lives, they may think, oh, that's just a very common, obvious thing that you do with your child. Uh, if, if you want to give your child a really exceptional education, I guess perhaps you'd sign him up for a private school or something along those lines. But, you know, for two very poor Puerto Ricans who came from small villages on this island, uh, sending their child on a school bus every morning to a very well-established public school in the town in which we live, for them, that was like striking gold. But by not speaking Spanish to their child, they subjected him to a different kind of poverty. Every summer, the family would return to Puerto Rico for two weeks. For my parents, of course, it was a very comfortable and very natural thing for them to visit with all their sisters and brothers and other relatives. And of course, everyone was speaking Spanish and having a wonderful time visiting with each other. And I remember very distinctly hating those moments uh, because I couldn't understand what anyone was saying. For some children of American immigrants, those whose parents did speak to them in the heritage language, returning to the home country can be a rewarding, even magical time. The American cousins reunite with their overseas cousins. Together they play and live in the local language. And when you're six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven years old, and you want to interact with your cousins and other relatives that you know are your family, but you can't because they don't speak English and I don't speak Spanish, it makes for a very um, uncomfortable, kind of awkward time. I've known Ed for many years. He's a friendly and magnanimous man, a great husband and father. He's also a very successful businessman, having grown his parents' business by leaps and bounds. But his inability to speak Spanish continues to be a regret in his life. I have been very involved in leading missions trips from my church, and most recently, medical uh, missions trips, so leading medical teams to the country of Guatemala. I often found it odd that I had to work through an interpreter in order to speak to these you know, Spanish-speaking people. And there were many times I thought, wow, this could be so much easier and go so much more smoothly if I knew Spanish. Ed is not alone in missing out on the Spanish spoken by his parents. According to the 2013 Pew survey, 25% of American Latinos don't speak Spanish at home. And among U.S.-born Latinos, more than 50% have given up speaking Spanish in their home. What's shocking is not how fast Spanish is taking over the country, but how fast English is taking over Spanish households. It's a continuation of a long trend in America. When I asked my grandma, I was about 14, and I asked her why she didn't speak Lithuanian to my dad and his brothers, and that maybe I would have learned it one day too, she didn't have to think twice. She just said, well, you know, you just didn't do that in Brooklyn in the 50s. You you had to speak English and assimilate. And I think that's the way a lot of this country still feels. They feel it's not enough to speak English. You have to speak English and nothing else. 
I'm Kim Patowski, and I'm a professor of linguistics at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Kim is an expert in language loss in America, what linguists call shift. I asked her why some Americans find it objectionable when their neighbors speak another language, even if they speak English perfectly. Well, because where do your loyalties really lie? You know, if you really want to be here, you'd forget all that other crap. You would just learn English and you would fit in and assimilate. For most of the 20th century, language loss, or shift, played out over a few generations. There's typically been a three-generation language shift, so the person immigrates, let's say, from Lithuania, and they're pretty much monolingual in Lithuanian. They'll have a child here in the U.S., or maybe they brought that child uh, quite young, under the age of five. That child will typically become uh, dominant in English. English will be their stronger language. But depending on a number of things, including birth order, uh, whether they had a grandparent in the house, whether they returned to Lithuania over the summers, that child will have greater or lesser proficiency in Lithuanian. And then the third generation, so the grandchild of a person who immigrated, again, a number of factors come into play here, but it's very, very typical for that person to have only receptive proficiency or no proficiency at all in the heritage language. So that's the traditional three-generation language shift. What we are documenting now is two-generation language shift. That's the case with Ed's family. But is it inevitable that gaining English proficiency has to mean crushing out heritage languages? Turns out educators have been battling America's language landslide with a new weapon being wheeled into position only in recent decades. So heritage language instruction is a field of language teaching that has been developing in the last you know, 30 years. Language instruction that is geared towards a population that already have some degree of knowledge in that language to differentiate them from students that don't have any knowledge about the language nor any connection with the culture. My name is Maria Luisa Parra, and I'm a senior preceptor of Spanish at the Department of Romance Languages and Literatures at Harvard University. Regular language classes, like most of us have taken, are designed for what language teachers call L2 learners and that they are learning their second language. Heritage language classes are different. They recognize the strengths that heritage students typically have, better oral skills and also recognize their typical weaknesses in grammar and writing. In addition, Latino language students are often insecure in their use of Spanish since they haven't been schooled in it. Sometimes older relatives chide them for their Spanglish, which can shame them into speaking less or not at all. I asked Maria if heritage language classes can help stem the tide of language loss among Latinos. Yes, I think so. I think that we can, um, in my experience teaching heritage students at Harvard, I've seen that the students start my class with um, feelings of insecurity and self-doubt. And there was one student who was from El Salvador, and she was very shy. And I can see that she felt very insecure in the class. And um, one of her, you know, goals or one of her concerns was that she was not speaking enough Spanish to her parents. And she wanted to do it a little bit more. So at the end of the semester, she learned a lot and she was able to 
give a very interesting presentation in the class, a very academic format about how migration impacts families, Latino families. When the class ended, Maria lost track of the student. I didn't see her for a couple of years, and then she took my class, a second class I have, and I thought that, you know, maybe her Spanish would have gone down, but no, her Spanish was really good. She said that she had been talking to her mother in Spanish much more. She wrote a wonderful newspaper article, a feature story on the community work that she was doing that semester. And the article was published in a Spanish newspaper here in Boston called El Planeta. Kim Patowski also teaches heritage language classes, and she advises other teachers what to be sensitive to when teaching Spanish to Latinos. She uses an analogy of clothing. Yes, so the idea is that when we go to a beach, we wear a bathing suit, flip-flops, T-shirt, you know, we dress informally. When we go to a wedding, we are expected to wear formal. If we showed up to the wedding in the big cathedral wearing a bathing suit and flip-flops... We would be dressed uh, very inappropriately. And if we showed up to the beach wearing our uh, tuxedo, we would also be considered to be dressed very, very inappropriately. This does not mean that any of these articles of clothing are inherently incorrect. A bathing suit cannot be incorrect. Um, So the same thing with language. A lot of times when you're raised in the US, uh, your English is very, very strong. Your heritage language is very, very weak. So in this analogy, it's kind of like saying you only have beach Spanish. The clothes analogy hits home with students. So when these students show up to our Spanish classes, that's one of the main things we want our heritage Spanish teachers to know is that We should not stand there with the red pen and and correct them and say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. You're wearing a bathing suit, that's wrong. How dare you? What I see our job as is bringing them to Macy's and and saying, hey, I'm going to help you um, expand your wardrobe. And you, come here, let's try this shirt on, try these shoes on. And I think a huge part of our job as heritage language educators is to, number one, raise students' linguistic self-esteem. And then once that happens, then you can go ahead and start adding on additional elements. Heritage language instruction works, but it takes time and effort on everyone's part. Kim says it's worth it. The loss of the heritage language does not have to be the price of admission. I, I envision a different world where English is like the, the mortar that holds us all together, and then we're all little mosaic pieces, and we have the little different colors and textures of pieces are our different languages and cultural viewpoints. It just makes us stronger. Why does this make us stronger, I ask? So as individuals, we become, our brains become stronger and better. Alzheimer's is staved off on average uh, four years, sometimes up to 10 years. The social benefits, they've done studies with children showing that the bilingual ones are much more readily able to predict the needs of the person they're talking to. 
so as human beings, sort of each of us becomes stronger, a stronger version of ourselves. And then as a collective, when we have to deal with things internationally, suddenly there's a conflict with Turkey. Oh, well, guess what? We have people here who, who speak Turkish and who get that culture more and maybe can help us communicate with them. Here is Maria Luisa Parra. Well, I think that for any country, linguistic resources are very valuable. I think that everybody benefits from that kind of richness. I have to say that the tendency is for immigrants to assimilate much more and much faster than the mainstream society embracing the cultures and languages of immigrants. Maria Luisa describes two kinds of people who are already established in the country. Some of them are very engaging and committed to diversity, and other times, other sectors of the society are not that way and tend to feel more protective what they think it's a core cultures. I see that here in the U.S., I see it in Mexico, I see it in Europe. Uh, but I do think that it's very important and, and good to be open. Let's return to the Delatore family. Ed married an Anglo woman named Mary, and they had three children. Each of them has now graduated from college. Their eldest is Julianne. She became interested in fashion design. She studied abroad in France and stayed, becoming fluent in French. While in Europe, she met and married a German professional volleyball player. Julianne is now diligently studying German. They plan their own children to grow up as bilinguals. Ed and Mary's second child is their son, Mark. He took Spanish, but didn't pursue it. He is recently married to a monolingual English speaker. Only their third child, Allison, studied the language of her grandparents diligently. She did a study abroad program. I did a five-week summer program in Sevilla, Spain. Loved that, absolutely loved Sevilla. I lived with a host mom and learned definitely vocabulary there. She would put on the TV at dinner time and I would listen to the Spanish from there. Um, we had all of our classes in Spanish, so I definitely felt very comfortable with it. Allison also went on several mission trips to Latin America, and it was there that her language skills blossomed. My first trip was to Peru. Then I took two trips to Guatemala and two to, or no, I'm sorry, one to Ecuador. The rest of my team members, very few of them spoke Spanish. And so they would ask me for help when we would go out and talk to the people in each of the countries. <laughs> I loved on my last trip to Ecuador, at the end of the trip, the translators gave me a translator t-shirt and said, you're one of us, you get to have, we wanted to give you this t-shirt. So I still have that today. Some of us are given the gift of bilingualism so young that we don't even know we're being given a gift. Others, like Ed Delatore, are denied the gift from parents who could have given it to them. Others are given part of the gift, and if they are lucky enough to find themselves in a heritage language class, like those taught by Maria Luisa Parra or Kim Patowski, can seize the rest of the gift of bilingualism. And finally, there are descendants, like Ed's daughter, Allison, who have to reclaim what could have been their birthright, 
they have to earn every thread of their translator t-shirt the hard way. I asked Allison, the translator, what her name means. De la Torre, of the tower. Someone must have lived in a tower. <laughs> I'm not sure. The America the Bilingual podcast is part of the Lead with Languages campaign of ACTFUL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. Check out our episode notes at americathebilingual.com. You'll find links to the people and the eye-opening data we cite. You'll also find photos of the Delatory family. A special thanks to the Pew Research Center for its uniquely valuable opinion polling on Hispanic trends. This episode was written by me, Steve Levine, and our producer, Fernando Hernandez, who also does sound design and mixing. Associate producer is Becky Rankin. Editorial consultants are Mim Harrison and Maya Thomas. Graphic arts are created by Carlos Plaza, Design Studio. Music in this episode with a Creative Commons attribution license by Kumiku, Kevin McLeod, Francisco Penilla, Lee Rosvere, and Frederick Larden. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.